Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. Today, we will be doing two weeks worth of Come Follow Me, discussing Doctrine and Covenants sections 106 through 110. And we are members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Another podcast connected to this network is Fireside with Blair Hodges. If you haven't listened to Fireside yet, be sure to check it out. The most recent episode, oh my gosh, it was so good. Blair Hodges interviewed Mary Rako about her book called This Is Why I Came, and it's where Mary Rako reimagines the Bible. Sometimes she retells the stories as if they're modern day. Sometimes she tells them asking questions like what happened after or what was going on in this person's head while these things were happening. And a lot of the stories she tells are disability friendly. She poses the concept of perhaps Adam received Eve because he was lonely and because he was yearning for someone like him. He had God's creations around him, but he wasn't seeing himself in God's creations. They go through multiple stories of the Bible, retelling them to make them more relatable. Again, the book is This Is Why I Came, and the episode is the most recent one on Fireside. Search Fireside with Blair Hodges. If you just type in Fireside, it'll be kind of hard to find. More information on the Dialogue Podcast Network can be found at dialoguejournal.com. So, One more thing. Last week, we learned about Zion's camp, the camp of Israel, and the faithful feminists actually found a story of a disabled woman. Like they found her story during this time that she was unable to have children. Her husband became a polygamist. She went through a lot of grief with Camp Zion and We learn more about her experiences with having poor mental health through that time and the faithful feminists share that story. They don't mention the word disability or disabled in the story, but by the way they tell her story, it seems like this woman had some kind of disability in her life, perhaps already existing, perhaps due to the trauma that she experienced through that time. But yeah, I thought that was really cool. They found that story. What made you think that she's disabled? So I haven't read the story of her besides just listening to the podcast, but the faithful feminists find these journal entries that talk about her written either by her brothers or someone else that knew her, and they call her insane in these stories. And then they also talk about how she had issues with her mental health and issues with her emotional health. I don't remember the exact Mm. phrasing, but like... 1830s phrasing and this woman like lost her relationships with her family and her friends and she was alone at the end of her life because of her I would say disability her yeah neurodiversity it's interesting to me that you say the faithful feminists didn't use the word disabled right Mm -hmm. I think that can be a spot where if we're too focused on one particular type of like 
injustice and remedying that through advocacy that we can miss the intersectional parts of that injustice, right? So I think sometimes, and I'm not saying this is the case because I haven't listened to that episode yet, but sometimes I feel like people who are ardently feminists are so used to like cishet men (laughs) usually, right? Accusing Mm -hmm. cishet women and women in general of being insane that the gut reaction is just to be like, well, I'm not insane. Like, stop demonizing women. Stop assuming that all women are insane, right? Like, you just are trying to gaslight me, which are not untrue things. But, like, why do you feel demonized by someone calling you insane? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's implicit that being associated with insanity is like a an uncomfortable, a negative thing. Or it's like a diss, like it's it's yeah. someone insulting someone, yeah. But the question is that I would pose is like, why is it an insult? What yeah. about these people who are just as women as you who do live with poor mental health or actually have like diagnoses that people back in the day would consider insane, you know, because we have perhaps some sort of personality disorder or schizotypal disorder or dissociative disorder or neurodivergency at the very least, you know, like these are people who are actually like, quote, insane. And why should you be afraid to be associated with us? Why should you be afraid to be mistaken for us? Yeah. I'm not saying that that was necessarily their thought process. I'm saying that as like a hypothesis and just kind of an observation of like just the internalized sort of gut reaction against being associated with disability or insanity, and which is internalized yeah. ableism. It was just interesting that they were circling concepts of like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. trauma, disability, and being sympathetic or empathetic to that, but they never used the words. And I kind of paired it to how people feel like the word disability is dirty. They feel like they have to tiptoe around mm-hmm. the word when it wasn't necessary. Like if that was her experience, it really does sound like she had, whether it was genetic or trauma-based, it sounded like she did have some kind of disability or neurodivergence or PTSD or something. Yeah. Anyway, the concept of being intersectional disability is sometimes last place. Yeah. Like even we were just talking about finding all these conversations of queerness and talking about like the LGBTQ community and how neuroqueer people or disabled or neurodivergent people are often left out of these spaces too. And I personally try to be more cautious about how I move in a space that's not mine when I don't see disability mentioned because I don't want to center myself. But also I know disability is innately involved in all these communities. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Sometimes I feel like I am not as like involved in like the queer community as I could be but it honestly just upsets me when people talk about queerness and like strangeness and then they leave out neurodivergencies and yeah I just I feel like alienated like even though my neurodivergency is like staring them right in the face you know what I mean 
Yeah, yeah. It kind of feels like we're the little sister that gets dragged along and mm, they don't want us mm-hmm. to be there, but we have to be there and they have to include us. Does that is that weird to say? No, that's, what that's it not feels weird. Like that I feel like like you want to say something, but you're like, I don't know if you're going to listen to me because you think I'm like so much like younger or inexperienced than you, you know? Yeah, maybe yeah. that's the assumption. Like Ryan and I have talked about how People get so nervous about disability, period, that they assume that we can't advocate for ourselves, that we can't help ourselves. They think that involving the disability community is so much more stressful and such a bigger pain that we have to be shepherded and we have to be helped. And it's an ableist assumption. There are plenty, plenty of disabled activists and We are here to do the work and raise awareness about ourselves. And if you want to be our allies, like, yes, we love your support and love you to spread the word and be inclusive and learn more about how you can be inclusive. But also we're doing the work too. We're here to do it too. Like it's an ableist assumption to think that it's going to be such a big pain to involve us. Or people worry that we're so fragile that we can't do it ourselves or that they're going to do the wrong things or say the wrong things. Well, I mean, they're going to say the wrong things. Like if you show up, you're going to fuck up, but show up anyway. You know, (laughs) I admire anybody who like has the initiative to try and be inclusive. Just recognize that you're not perfect and we're all going to make mistakes in our attempts at inclusivity, but it's about listening to the community if we have accidentally made a mistake that harms a particular community or represented them poorly and then apologizing and making changes based off of that like (laughs) one quote that I see all the time on my writer Instagram which is actually really annoying because it like reminds me that I need to write more (laughs) is you can't edit a blank page right or the worst screenplay that's ever been written is still better than the best screenplay that's never been written if that makes sense Mm, yeah (laughs) the same concept applies you gotta take initiative and try yeah I don't know if you've seen the show Ted Lasso But he says in the show, like, be like a goldfish, have a 10 second memory kind of thing. And yeah, (laughs) it's hard when you make a mistake, but like be teachable in your intersectionality. You have to, otherwise you can't be intersectional, (laughs) especially if you're trying to include marginalized communities that you're not a part of, right? You're going to make mistakes. The church won't be what it needs to be unless we're intersectional. Yeah. I think that turned into a way longer conversation than we meant to make it, but I wanted to add on the end of this, this whole conversation isn't completely directed toward the faithful feminists. I think there's just been a lot of things on our hearts lately, and we just wanted to go into these things a little bit. Okay, let me summarize really quick all these sections. We're looking at 106 to 110. Uh, 106 is talking about, it's a revelation given to Warren Cowdery, that's Oliver Cowdery's older brother, about his call. 107 is revelation on the priesthood. It was given when 12 apostles met and they were discussing their own sins and seeking to repent. 108 is revelation to Lyman Sherman about his duty. 109 is the dedicatory prayer for the Kirtland Temple. And 110 is the vision in the Kirtland Temple that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery had of the Lord. 
So before we jump into the actual text, let me just share a couple stories of what's going on around all this time. The priesthood meeting that we learn more about in 107, Joseph noticed that these men weren't acting the way that he felt they should be acting or not mm, taking advantage of these meetings the way that he felt that they should. And I found this in a footnote of a footnote from Come Follow Mm. Me. It led me to the Joseph Smith papers that are connected to the church website. This is notes from a meeting where Joseph is speaking. This is quoting, In ancient days, councils were conducted with such strict propriety that no one was allowed to whisper, be weary, leave the room, or get uneasy in the least until the voice of the Lord by revelation or by the voice of the council by the Spirit was obtained which had not been observed in this church to the present. It was understood in ancient days that if one man could stay in council, another could. If the president could spend his time, the members could also. But in our councils, generally one would be uneasy, another asleep. One praying, another not. One's mind on the business of the council, another thinking on something else. Our acts are recorded, and at a future day they will be laid before us. And if we should fail to judge right and injure our fellow beings, they may there perhaps condemn us. Thus they are of great consequence. And to me the consequence appears to be of force beyond anything which I am able to express. I felt like that was interesting. And I have heard that before. My mission president once said to us, that will never receive the full power of the spirit in any meeting where one person is asleep. <laughs> if one person is asleep, then we can't receive the full power of the spirit that could be there. Sorry, I should have warned you before I said something like that. How do you feel about oh. that, Serena? <laughs> First of all, that's a violation of human rights, according to the United Nations, uh, which is punishing a whole group of people for one person's actions. Secondly... <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, not sorry, like narcoleptic here. And more than that, okay, one guy's mind was on the matter and someone else's mind was on something else. That just sounds like cracking down on neurodiversity and just like neurological differences. I thought that too. Like I first jumped to neurodiversity and how this is not accepting of that. But also Mm -hmm. I feel like we're taught... When we're in a meeting, like the spirit will guide your mind if you're trying to be in tune with the spirit and it could lead you to think about something else that the speaker isn't teaching. So that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, it also just I would love to have someone who is ADHD on the podcast and I might. I don't know. I have some ADHD traits, but I haven't quite untangled that because I've just been focused on like autism and cluster B stuff. But like. If I focus too much on what the speaker is saying, I will fall asleep. Like, I have to distract myself Mm -hmm. in order to stay awake. I bring snacks or gum or a sketchbook or, like, crocheting or knitting or, well, back when I used to go to church, right? In my opinion, don't you think that me being awake and distracted will be able to, like, let me absorb more of the atmosphere and the spirit and the words rather than like me being asleep and just like, okay, God, speak to me like through my narcoleptic hallucinations. Like, (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, which is a thing for people with narcolepsy. Like we do have what's called hypnagogic hallucinations. But anyway, literally all those things that you listed are like accommodations that I need at church. You know, like getting yeah. weary, like falling asleep, standing up and leaving the room. That helps me to wake up as well. Or like, heaven forbid, like go to the bathroom. Like, come on. People have bodies. And this is the sort of thing that irritates me. People are just so ashamed to have a body with like bodily needs, you know, mm-hmm. And it's like they want to try to to control it or rise above it instead of like working with it. And personally, yeah. I would rather work with my body than try to like squeeze it into some mold that it can't fit into. I cannot imagine the amount of like self-hate that those people have where they just are trying and trying, to, especially if someone is disabled and they haven't been taught that their disability is like an okay thing. And disabled people tend to do this or they try to sometimes with internalized ableism and feeling pressure to like mm, like hide their disability for the sake yeah. of non-disabled people. We do it physically, emotionally, mentally, mm-hmm. and it doesn't work. Like it does not work for us. Also in this section when it goes to like our acts are recorded and at a future day they'll be laid before us, like that's a fear tactic. But also mm. I – put my knowledge of God on this and it makes me not afraid. God knows that you have narcolepsy, Serena. God knows that Mm -hmm. you have cataplexy and that you have different tactics to stay awake in different situations and that's not going to be used against you at the last days, you know? Come on. Oh, man. Another thing that was going on at this time is the brethren were having kind of like disciplinary councils. Let me read this little part. After the council had received much good instruction from Brother Joseph, the case of Brother Martin Harris, against whom Mm. certain charges were preferred by Brother Sidney Rigdon, one was that he, Martin Harris, told Esquire Alpheus C. Russell, so a journalist, that Joseph drank too much liquor when he was translating the Book of Mormon, that he wrestled with many men... He wrestled with many men and threw them. Another charge was that he, Martin, exalted himself above Brother Joseph in that he said Brother Joseph knew not the contents of the Book of Mormon until it was translated, but that Brother Martin himself knew all about it before it was translated. And then in the council... It says, Brother Martin said he did not tell the journalist that Brother Joseph drank too much liquor while he was translating the Book of Mormon, but that this thing took place before the Book of Mormon was translated. He confessed that his mind was darkened, that he said many things inadvertently calculated to wound the feelings of his brethren, and he promised to do better. The council forgave him and gave him much good advice. (sighs) the mind is darkened thing is also in section 106 actually which i don't like it just seems like a convenient not an excuse it's just i don't like the association between like darkness and confusion or irrationality or like evilness right i don't know it just just seems like it's right there on the edge, kind of like circling insanity, right? Which is an ableist concept. Does that make sense? Yeah, I thought it was interesting how the way that this was written, it's almost like blaming concepts of disability to shirk the blame off of yourself. Like he Mm -hmm. said, he was inadvertently calculated to wound the feelings of 
the brethren and that his mind was darkened and then he promised to do better. Like, it's not my fault. My mind was darkened. Like, it's such a strange way to, like, not take full responsibility, which we've talked about before. Like, you still have to be held accountable if you are disabled and you make mistakes. Yeah. And are we going to talk about how uh, Joseph liked his whiskey or... I know that part. I was cracking up. It's like he'd get drunk and wrestle people. I'm like, dang, Joseph. <laughs> Honestly, oh that makes gosh. me like him more. <laughs> but um, my point is the thing that Martin Harris was like making this excuse for was not even like something that he should be ashamed about, in my opinion. Like, why do you feel bad for telling what happened? And do you remember when we learned before that Martin Harris switched the seer stones to, like, test Joseph? Like, he's done (laughs) things in the past where he tried to, like, trick people, and then he came back and said, oh, I'm sorry, I did the wrong thing, my mind was darkened, whatever he said. Mm -hmm. You know, if that's him, and he was still called by God, like, I wonder why he was forgiven, but Lucy Mm. Harris was, Mm -hmm. like so forsaken by people and people could not forgive her yeah that's definitely something that is a conversation (laughs) yeah okay let's talk about 106 now (laughs) yes yeah so it's talking about the resurrection so i guess the whole like darkness which i was talking about it's not mind darkness in this section it's saying basically that the second coming will come over the world as a thief in the night but the people of the church are the children of light. And if they gird up their loins, that day will not overtake them as a thief, which is what I was talking about with the association between like light and darkness and like righteousness and like evilness, which is false dichotomy in my opinion. But this whole section is being given to Warren A. Cowdery. Turns out that he eventually left the church. A Sunday school manual from 2002 says, Unfortunately, Warren Cowdery did not remain a faithful witness. He eventually went to Kirtland, Ohio, and was given a job in the printing office, later becoming the editor of The Messenger and Advocate. In the apostasy of 1837, he became associated with such dissidents, such as Warren Parrish, John F. Boynton, Leonard Rich, Luke Johnson, and Stephen Burnett. Like many, he grew rebellious against the prophet and fell away from the church. In August 1838, the Elder's Journal, which is a new official church publication, it attacked Warren Cowdery, Warren Parrish, and the other dissidents who left the church, criticized Warren Cowdery. Also, I should give a a, a content warning for racist slurs. They criticized Warren Cowdery, claimed that they gave him the printing job out of pity, but that he sucked at it and that you shouldn't make a slave equal to a master. So this is I'm quoting the Elder's Journal, which was an official church publication in 1838. Quote, this poor, pitiful beggar came to Kirtland a few years since with a large family, nearly naked and destitute. It was really painful to see this pious doctor's, for such he professed to be, rags flying when he walked the streets. He was taken in by us in this pitiful condition, and we put him into the printing office and gave him enormous wages, not because he could earn it or because we needed his service, but merely out of pity. We knew Hmm. the man's incompetency all the time and his ignorance and inability to fill any place in the literary world with credit to himself or to his employers. 
But notwithstanding all this, out of pure compassion, we gave him a place and afterwards hired him to edit the paper in that place and gave him double as much as he could have gotten anywhere else, merely that he might not have to be supported as a pauper. But now, reader, mark the sequel. It is a fact of public notoriety that as soon as he found himself and family in possession of decent apparel, he began to use all his influence to our injury, both in his sayings and doings. We have often heard it remarked by slaveholders that you should not make a Negro equal with you or he would try to walk over you. We have found this saying verified in this pious doctor, for truly this deadly spirit manifested itself in all its meanness. Even in his writings, and they are very mean at best, he threw out foul insinuations, which no man who had one particle of noble feeling would have condescended to. But such was the conduct of this master of meanness. End quote. Holy. That was a doozy. <sighs> we have this church publication from 1838 criticizing someone who left the church saying that he was incompetent when he was holding this job and basically saying, well, we shouldn't have trusted him. Just like the slave masters say, you can't give anybody power or they'll suck at it. And they're using really heinous racist terms to associate him with like incompetence and associating black people and slaves back then with incompetence and disability and weakness and foulness. That's horrifying. I'm not sure if it's implying that he was disabled. Like, he could have been disabled, or he could have just simply been lower class, right? They do use the word incompetency, which is a word that often gets associated with disability. And it's interesting to me, to back it up, they use these racist concepts, right? And it just shows yeah. how intertwined ableism and racism are. Mm -hmm. There are some people who say that all ableism is rooted in anti-blackness. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was just kind of a shock to me to like really see that played out so blatantly in mm -hmm. this church publication. Oh gosh, it's blatant. It's blatant here. I just want to say for people who are listening to this and are thinking, oh, well, you know, they were products of their time. That's how it was back then. Like, let's remind everyone that the church had made the Book of Mormon widely available for members. And in the Book of Mormon, we read 2 Nephi 26, 33, the Lord inviteth all the children of men to come unto him and partake of his goodness. And he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. He remembereth the heathen and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. This was a church publication who broke every single part of this scripture, denying black people, denying the bound, denying the quote unquote heathen. And I'll say that here because that's how they saw this person at this time. Even if they saw this person this way at this time, their calling was not to persecute this person. Hello. It's hard to read, but it definitely informs us of what it meant to be a member of the church back then and what it meant to leave the church back then. It's reflected, I would say today in the church as well, that we do not let people leave very easily. And we even to this day forget this scripture in 2 Nephi 26, 33, when people leave the church. We need to be better. We need to read this verse and understand 
our job is to be open and to love all and remember that all are alike unto God and to not just unfriend people who leave the church. Like our relationship should be the same love filled relationship, whether someone's in the church or not, because we understand that all are like unto God. We have to realize in this scripture, that it's not giving a caveat saying all who are a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are alike unto God or all that do this and this and this are invited by God, like all people, he denieth none. We are taking a quick break here, but we'll be right back with Doctrine and Covenants 107. The Dialogue Podcast is home to tons of great content on LDS themes. There, you'll get access to the award-winning Dialogue Book Report, which hosts reviewers and authors talking about all the best new nonfiction, fiction, and memoirs. We also offer Dialogue Out Loud, beautifully crafted episodes that bring stories and other content from the journal to life. There's also Dialogue Sunday Study, which features a different amazing teacher on the Come Follow Me lessons each time. You'll also get access to the Dialogue Topics podcast, which explores the scholarship in depth of one major issue. And there's more. Subscribe to the Dialogue podcast wherever you get your podcasts or find them at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. One oh seven, I got really hung up on one verse. <laughs> okay, what is it? Uh, so it's right at the beginning. Um, it's so section one oh seven is talking about the priesthood. Verse five, it's talking about the Melchizedek priesthood, which is the higher priesthood, and the Aaronic priesthood is the lower priesthood. And uh, verse five, in reference to the Melchizedek priesthood, says, All other authorities or offices in the church are appendages to this mm. priesthood. I thought that that was an interesting word to use here. There's footnotes that bring you to two different scriptures that talk about appendages when talking about the priesthood. And one of them is in this section. It's actually just verse 14, referring to the Aaronic priesthood. Why is it called the lesser priesthood is because it is an appendage to the greater or the Melchizedek priesthood and has power in administering outward ordinances. So I looked up the word appendage. There's two definitions for it. One says a projecting part of an invertebrate or other living organism with a distinct appearance or function. And I was like, oh, cool, like the body of Christ. Mm. Like it's saying the Melchizedek priesthood, like all other things are like part of the body of Christ. All of these different things have their functions and Melchizedek priesthood is also like part of the function of the church. But the other definition, it says often with negative or pejorative connotations, a thing that is added or attached to something larger or more mm. important. So that would mean that it's saying that the Melchizedek priesthood is the most important thing ever and everything is just something smaller, something less important. Mm. And it's there to support this larger, more important thing. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder which way this is meant to be read. If it's meant to be like, oh, body of Christ inclusive or like making like a hierarchy. 
some examples I thought of how we speak of the priesthood to like try to figure out which definition we should go with is if you look at verse 14, where it's talking about the Aaronic priesthood is lesser to the Melchizedek priesthood Mm. and verse five, where it's like everything else is an appendage. Read that into how our church functions today. A random 18 year old boy's power and role would be greater or more important than Sister Jean B. Bingham's power and role as the General Relief Society president or her counselors, Sister Sharon Eubanks or Sister Reina Alberto, or all of their roles combined as the General Relief Society president. Because he has the Melchizedek priesthood and they don't. And so their auxiliary office is just, quote, an appendage. Is that what you're saying? Right. Yeah, exactly. Thinking about it that way, like, dang, these women are on a general level of our church. Like, their responsibilities are huge. But still, it's saying the Melchizedek priesthood is more important. And a random 18-year-old can have the Melchizedek priesthood and not have a calling with it. It's saying that that would be more important. If you look up Relief Society presidency on the church's topics page, it says, Within the structure of the church, women have opportunities to be leaders, give sermons during worship services, and offer congregational prayers. What it's ignoring is the hierarchy of the church. Like, yes, women have the opportunity to lead, but the way we're set up right now, women can't have the influence that men have even though they have just as much insight or guidance by the Spirit as men do. Yeah. There are some that believe that Joseph Smith, when he helped establish the Relief Society, there's some people that believe that he gave priesthood power to women. I'm going to read something. So you go to the church website, church history, and then it's in the Gospel Topics essay. This one is called Joseph Smith's Teachings About Priesthood, Temple, and Women. And it says, in organizing the Relief Society, Joseph spoke of, quote, ordaining women and said that Relief Society officers would, quote, preside over the society. He also declared, quote, I now turn the key to you in the name of God. And then it says, these statements indicate that Joseph Smith delegated priesthood authority to women in the Relief Society. Joseph's language can be more fully understood in, in historical context. During the 19th century, Latter-day Saints used the term keys to refer at various times to authority, knowledge, or temple ordinance. Likewise, members of the church sometimes use the term ordain in a broad sense, often interchangeably with set apart and not always referring to priesthood office. On these points, Joseph's actions illuminate the meaning of his words. Neither Joseph Smith nor any person acting on behalf nor any of his successors conferred the Aaronic or Melchizedek priesthood on women or ordained women to priesthood office. So it kind of is like myth busted, like women don't Mm. have the priesthood. (laughs) It's interesting because then it pulls even more quotes out where Joseph kind of doubles down on women's (laughs) authority. It says... The second aspect of Joseph Smith's teachings to the Relief Society that may be unfamiliar today is his endorsement of women's participation in giving blessings of healing. Mm -hmm. Quote, respecting the female laying on hands, the Nauvoo Relief Society minutes record, Joseph said that it is no sin for anybody to do it that has faith and admonished. If the sisters should have faith to heal the sick, let all hold their tongues and let everything roll on. (laughs) Yes. It says, 
Some women had performed such blessings since the early days of the church. At that time, Latter-day Saints understood the gifts of healing primarily in the terms of the New Testament's teachings that it was one of the gifts of the Spirit available to believers through faith. Joseph taught that the gift of healing was a sign that would follow all that believe, whether male or female. And then it goes into some women testifying of seeing other women give blessings and have power Anyway, it was different in early church days. I actually read one time. I couldn't find it today. I need to find the article that I read it in originally, but I believe it was Wilford Woodruff, whose wife also laid hands on their sons with Wilford Woodruff when they gave their sons priesthood. She -hmm. would also participate in laying on of hands in that ordinance. So it's not just blessings, it's, oh, wow. and some women baptized other women in the temples in early church days. Of course, this article steps back on that and kind of debunks these things. But yeah, going back and reading Joseph's actual words, he never corrected himself or clarified what he meant. It's mm-hmm. It's different people doing that now. So I wonder how the church interprets his words now, if he would agree with it or not. Yeah. Considering he let women and and told everybody to hold their tongues um, about women like giving healing blessings and women baptizing other women, like yeah. I don't, I don't think he would necessarily like what these people are saying about women not having priesthood now. Yeah, pretty interesting. Back to the word appendage that's used in verse five and verse fourteen in section mm-hmm. one hundred seven. While we're talking about Relief Society and women and priesthood, this is another example that I'd use to point to, like, which meaning are we looking at when we look at the word appendage? I believe if it were trying to say, like, the body of Christ and it's just to support other parts of the body, the revelation that created the Relief Society, I believe that it would be canonized in Doctrine and Covenants. If it's all like, Mm -hmm. it's all part of the body of Christ and to support each other, I believe that the fact that it's not further points to the negative or pejorative definition that says that an appendage is like a lesser thing that's part of a greater, more Mm -hmm. important thing. That's a really good point. (sighs) Makes me think about like prosthetics. Appendages, that's what I think about. That's Mm -hmm. like your limbs, right? It's like your arms Mm -hmm. and your legs. And so people who have prosthetics, that's like one of their appendages. Mm -hmm. and. It's probably not intentional, but like in my mind, like the way they say it makes it sound like these appendages or these prosthetics are not as important because they're not like the natural part of the body. Like the body would still survive if it didn't have the appendages because it's like an insignificant part of like the main source of power that the body is. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Which is an interesting like disability tie-in. I don't know how much credence I should give to that. That might just be my mind making those associations. I personally don't have a limb difference, but I would really be curious to see how someone with a limb difference would feel about that. But anyway. Yeah. One more thing I want to mention when we talk about priesthood is I want to clarify what the church teaches on disabilities and the priesthood. Okay. If you go to the church handbook, the priesthood section, (laughs) it says, quote, Worthy male church members receive priesthood authority through priesthood conferral and ordination to priesthood offices. Um, That's not always true. (laughs) Mm. 
first, before I speak on this next part, I just want to say I have limited personal experience with disabled people who have restrictions or doubts from leaders about being baptized. So everything that I've read has just been online. If you do have personal experiences or stories about this, please let us know and we'd love to talk to you about it and possibly interview you about it. We're going to look at the church handbook to start. And first we have to start in baptism because you can't get the priesthood without being baptized first. The guidelines for persons with intellectual disabilities is what it says in the church handbook for baptism. A person age eight or older who has an intellectual disability, his or her parents where applicable, and the bishop counsel together to determine whether the person should be baptized and confirmed. They counsel about whether the person can understand and keep the covenants of baptism, whether the person is accountable. If the person can reasonably be considered accountable, he or she may be baptized and confirmed. Those who are not accountable do not need to be baptized regardless of age. Now I want to point out the word reasonably here. There is no definition of what reasonably means. So that's an issue that will mean it's interpreted in a lot of different ways by different leaders. Also, let's go back to how the decision is made. The person with the disability, parents were applicable and bishop. Red flags go up when I think about how often disabled people, but especially people with intellectual disabilities, are infantilized and how this could be an issue here. If parents and bishop counsel together to make the decision for an intellectually disabled person. Also, the next sentence doesn't even use the word reasonably. Those who are not accountable do not need to be baptized regardless of age. Does this mean that whatever parents and bishop decides for an intellectually disabled person is law? Actually, in the 70s, I read they in the handbook then said if accountability changes that disabled people can be considered for baptism. The handbook doesn't say that today. So what does that mean? Desire is talked about in the beginning where it talks about referring to the person with the intellectual disability. But when it says they counsel about whether the person can understand and keep the covenants of baptism, whether the person is accountable, it doesn't even talk about desire here. If the person wants to be baptized and taking that into account when the decision is made, that's also an issue. So moving on to what the handbook says about getting the priesthood for those who have intellectual disabilities, it says, quote, a male church member who has an intellectual disability, his parents were applicable, and the bishop counsel together about whether he should receive the priesthood. They counsel about whether he is accountable, whether he has a basic understanding of the priesthood and his responsibilities. Priesthood holders who have such disabilities should be assisted so they can fulfill priesthood duties as fully as possible. So not only do you have to counsel with bishop and possibly parents to get baptized, but also to receive the priesthood. Do we see how there's two barriers for people with intellectual disabilities? Maybe some would say rightfully so 
to get the priesthood and where there would be gaps where maybe someone doesn't get baptized at all. Maybe someone gets baptized, but parents decide that they're not ready to hold the priesthood and fulfill priesthood duties. We can see where someone could be worthy. Someone could even be a member of the church and not, and be male follow all these guidelines of what the church handbook says of who gets to have the priesthood and still not receive the priesthood. 38219 says, persons who have physical disabilities, such as the loss of one or both arms, paraplegia, quadriplegia, or deafness, or are hard of hearing, may perform and receive ordinances and blessings. Leaders arrange for these persons to participate to the extent possible. If leaders have questions they cannot resolve, the stake president refers the questions to the office of the first presidency. Persons who are deaf or hard of hearing may communicate through sign language when performing or receiving an ordinance or blessing. A priesthood leader who oversees an ordinance ensures that the recipient can understand it through an interpreter or by other means. And there's another section that says the person who interprets blessings can be a woman or a man, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, interprets or translates blessings. So I thought this was really cool. I think that we don't talk about this enough or take advantage of this enough of how accommodations are essential to the participation of all people in ordinances. Mm-hmm. We seem so hesitant to make accommodations when we shouldn't be. It says leaders arrange for these persons to participate to the extent possible. Can a person without hands do the laying on of hands? Mm. Yes, we could make accommodations and people can still participate. And I just want to make sure that that's very clear here. Thank you. I think anytime that we see accommodations, that it's good to mention it and remind people that they're there because it's so rare that we see them. Because like part of me, when, when you read that line about participating as much as possible, it almost made it sound like well, participate as much as you can and then stop and then you can't do any more. But the examples that you found with accommodations, I'm like, okay, so they weren't saying that they really do want to make accommodations. Yeah. I think like as people with disabilities, we fear to ask for accommodations, especially when it's something so serious and holy like ordinances. Like I feel Mm -hmm. like we're taught that they have to be done a very specific way. Like it has to be exact wording, exact motions. Of course, God wants you to still participate if you're not able to do it in the exact way. I don't think that we should be so caught up in the routine or the exactness of it because that can make people feel like they can't do it, which is not true. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. I have been talking so much. Your turn. Section 107 verse 43. Okay. Yeah. Moving on in this verse, like talking about Adam and Seth and Enoch and Mahalalel and they were all like super old when they were translated or when they received the priesthood. It says Enoch was 430 when he was translated. Mahalalel was 496 years old when he received the priesthood. 
Like, I went to come follow me, and I was like, hey, what the hell does it say about them being super old? And it didn't say anything. And I was like, really? Like, we're not going to talk about their near immortality, you know, in a church that is so big on, like, immortality and eternal life and being resurrected and bodies. We're not going to talk about how they had bodies that lived for hundreds of years. Like, I thought that was really Mm. strange. And so I Googled it. The closest thing I found was this website called thirdhour.org, which is a forum for Latter-day Saints. And there's this topic. Someone asked this question, like, why did people in the scriptures live so long, right? And this is from, like, 2008. And some of the responses were so, like, I just want to, they were so odd. I want to share them because I want people to know kind of the discourse that surrounds these sort of questions when they're not specifically addressed in our manuals or in our teachings, etc. People jump to these conclusions that can be really problematic. So let me just share a couple of these. So one person said that those numbers are just symbolic. It's a use of gematria. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, which is uh, an alphanumeric code of assigning a numerical value to a name. It's a Hebrew alphanumeric code or cipher that was probably used in biblical times and was later adopted by other cultures. Anyway, so one person was like, oh, it's just symbolic. A different person said, one theory I've heard is because they were closer to Adam and Eve who had, quote, perfect bodies when placed on this earth and the fall made their bodies corruptible, but not immediately corrupted. As generation after generation went by, more corruptions began seeping into the gene pool. Not sure how, I guess, genetic mutation causing the human body to age faster and illnesses and such started cropping up, killing people off before their time. Another one is to look at the years as being months instead, and you find that the ages come down to be pretty much average when you do that. End quote. Like, oh, man. The fact that they're talking about bodies being perfect and then associating the perfect body with having, like, perfect genetics and being, like, immune to, like, illnesses, that's just, like, very, like, low-key or maybe almost high-key, like, eugenic stuff. Does that make sense? Like, that's just, like, immediately, like, a red flag to me. More people started commenting things like that, like, quote, I believe that Adam came with a perfect body. Once the fall took place, blood began to flow in his veins. See, fall of Adam or flesh in Bible dictionary, which, okay, let me pause this and say, like, so you don't believe that he had blood in his veins? But when he was in the Garden of Eden, like... What the hell? Like, are we all, like, are you saying a perfect body, like, is this sort of inanimate thing that doesn't have any real flesh? Like, are we all going to be, like, vampires? Like, is translation literally just becoming, like, Edward Cullen? Like, I don't... <laughs> this was so weird to me. I feel like when it talks about Christ, it talks about how he has flesh and blood that Joseph could yes. see, like, flesh and bones and blood to show that he's a real body. And his scars, right? Yeah. You can't have scars if you don't have blood. Like, literally, that's your blood knitting your flesh together. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but you know what I mean? Like, you can't have scars if you don't have blood. And if Christ, when he was resurrected, was, quote, perfected and retained his scars, then obviously a perfect body, by that logic, would still have blood. This is just some interesting stuff. I'll continue with this quote. 
We know that genetic mutations occur and that they bring disease and physical ailments. I think the patriarchs lived so much longer because their bodies didn't have all the genetic mutations and problems that we have inherited. Man's body has been devolving ever since the fall of Adam. He had a perfect body, and since he fell, the human body has devolved. All known mutations in higher organisms, excluding bacteria, have been detrimental. There's never been observed a beneficial mutation in the body of mankind, nor any other higher organisms. As such, the body of man used to live longer and be more resilient. Now, not so much. Man is devolving, not evolving. Read Doctrines of Salvation by Joseph F. Smith, compiled by B.R.M. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie, book one. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, it's horrific, but it's also, like, hilarious. <laughs> the sort of conspiracy theories... Can we acknowledge the inherent ableism in this? Does that make sense? Like genetic yeah. mutations, disease, physical ailments, and then associating that with having an imperfect body, you know, um, and the fact that the, the, the bodies are devolving, like that's just one step away from eugenics and saying like certain bodies are better than others and therefore we must make sure that some bodies are not born because otherwise we will continue to devolve. Does that make sense? Like, mm. whoo. Dang. You know, I think it's cool. Like, I love when we have space to just wonder about things. I love that we don't have every single answer in the church mm -hmm. and that people have space to put their own thoughts together. But we do have to realize that our own biases may seep through, are likely to seep mm -hmm. through when we do this. So this is a really good example of where <laughs> that could happen, you know? Yeah. And then... Someone else was talking about incest and sort of the same kind of lines that like, oh, since Adam and Eve's children had to like marry each other, it took a while for like the incest to deteriorate the DNA. And then once it did, that's why their lives were like shortened. Anyway, oh, it was. My goodness. And then someone else was just like, oh, well, firmament equals expanse and the atmosphere, the clouds, the layers of the water in the atmosphere, like uh, the press, the water pressure, like could explain giants and longevity of life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So what you said, like, yes, I appreciate room for wonder and questions, especially as a neurodivergent person. I need that. But like, got to call it out when people are <laughs> spreading these conspiracy theories that are like blatantly ableist and like harmful to disabled and chronically ill and neurodivergent people literally there's a study just published like recently that made a bunch of headlines in like the bbc and cnn about how um parents can reverse autism in their children if their children are like preschool age or something and it's just atrocious um anyway and it's just like that kind of thinking Mm. It's already so prevalent. We don't need more people adding to the idea that some bodies are imperfect or that some minds are imperfect and that we need to have like a perfect race. Like that's some Nazi shit right there. Like, mm -hmm. can we stop? Anyway, really quick, verse 100 in section 107. He that is slothful shall not be counted worthy to stand. And he that learns not of his duty and shows himself not approved shall not be counted worthy to stand. That's just blatantly ableist, like talking about slothfulness. And it reminds me of what you were saying about these councils. They're nagging on these people who were falling asleep during meetings. And now it's saying, if you're slothful, you're not worthy to stand. Mm -hmm. 
what the hell does worthy to stand even mean? Like, is this a metaphor? Like, again, autistic brain is like, okay, I'm going to take it literally. But part of me was like, okay, well, maybe it is just a metaphor. So I tried to look it up (laughs) and I found a, a seminary manual reference. The manual said, Ask students to read Doctrine and Covenants 107, 99 through 100 silently and ponder how President Hinckley's statement relates to these verses. And President Hinckley's statement was, your obligation is as serious mm-hmm. in your sphere of responsibility as is my obligation in my sphere. No calling in this church is small or of little consequence. All of us in the pursuit of our duty touch lives of others. Which at first I'm like, okay, what's, I don't get it. What, what, what does this have to do with standing? And then it said, according to verses 99 through 100, what must we do to stand worthy before the Lord? And again, I'm like, is this literal? Is this a metaphor? And then it says, students should identify the following principle to stand worthy before the Lord. We must learn our duty and act in all diligence to fulfill it. You may want to suggest that students mark this truth in their scriptures. I feel like to me, they just take it for granted that everybody Hmm. knows what they mean by stand Or maybe they just take it for granted that literally everyone will be standing in front of God at Judgment Day. That's why to them, maybe it even is literal. Either way, it's problematic, right? Because if it is a metaphor, then it's an ableist metaphor and excludes people who can't stand and excludes autistic people who are like, what the hell is this a metaphor or not? But if it's not a metaphor, it's like even worse. Like, okay, verse 100 says... If you're slothful, you will not be counted worthy to stand. Like, if you're slothful, then we're going to make sure you're not standing up. Like, are you going to disable people if they're too slothful, in your opinion? Like, mm, like that's problematic. And then gets better slash worse in that seminary manual in like what it calls supplemental teaching idea for doctrine and covenants 107 99 through 100 video presentation dayton's legs have you seen this (gasps) yes yes so it referenced that video about this i think he's a preschool kid who pulls his friend with cerebral palsy during a triathlon right and it referenced this for these verses. Wow. Are y'all making the connection between like standing and like legs? I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it's like kind of too close to not be intentional, except they don't acknowledge it. The way they make it sound like it relates is that it's through duty and that like, what did it say? It said um, how one quorum president fulfilled his calling, right? Um, so they're saying that he fulfilled his calling by pulling his friend with cerebral palsy during this triathlon, right? And it just talks about duty, etc. Which, first of all, like, I-, I have complicated feelings about it being a duty to, like, help a disabled person. Part of me is like, yes, you have a duty to, like, be accommodating, right? But at the same time, oh, it's kind of cringy to me. It, like, the quote, the parents said, he doesn't want to look like the hero at all. He wants Dayton to look like the hero, and he's just Dayton's legs. But the video itself spent, like, the majority interviewing him and his parents. You know what <laughs> I'm like? Right, if he doesn't want right. to look like the hero, then why are you presenting this video, editing this video, and making him look like the hero? And honestly, like, the kid himself was less cringy than the parents like it seemed like he treated Dayton more as an equal than like his parents did he was like oh yeah we were both smiling and like he's my friend you know and like things like that like the video itself is 
is specifically tailored to make this 16 year old kid look like a hero for pulling his disabled friend through this triathlon and then talk about how it's his duty and how that duty makes him worthy to stand at the last days. Yeah. Wow. Dang. I can't believe they put that video to this scripture. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Section 109 and 110. I actually felt the spirit super strong when reading this section. I think this is like, I have very few sections of the Doctrine and Covenants that are my favorite, but this is (laughs) because I feel like a lot of them are really hard for me to read. But these sections are really, really cool. So these are the sections that talk about the dedication of the Kirtland Temple and the vision that Joseph and Oliver Cowdery had in the Kirtland Temple of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Come follow me. This is how they introduce these sections. It says, but it wasn't just the living who were anxious to be present. Multiple witnesses testified that they saw angels inside the temple and even on the roof during and after the dedication. It really did seem that the, quote, armies of heaven had come to, quote, sing and to shout with the Latter-day Saints. It also says in the Saints book, 1, 232 through 241, The spirit had again descended on the men in the temple, meaning the leadership. So like the 12 apostles met in the temple after the dedication. And they began to prophesy, speaking in tongues and exhorting one another in the gospel. Ministering angels appeared to some men and few others had visions of the Savior. I also found some other quotes of people who were there. Eliza R. Snow wrote, (laughs) The ceremonies of that dedication may be rehearsed, but no mortal language can describe the heavenly manifestations of that memorable day. Angels appeared to some, while a sense of divine presence was realized by all present, and each heart was filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is a quote by Joseph Smith. Many of my brethren who received the ordinances of washing and anointing, which they did in the temple after the dedication with me, saw glorious visions also. Angels ministered unto them as well as to myself, and the power of the highest rested upon us. The house was filled with the glory of God, and we shouted Hosanna to God and the Lamb. George A. Smith said, He was speaking, and a noise was heard like the sound of a rushing mighty wind which filled the temple, and all the congregation simultaneously arose, being moved upon an invisible power. Many began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Others saw glorious visions, and I beheld the temple was filled with angels. David Whitmore bore testimony that he saw three angels passing up the south aisle, The people of the neighborhood came running together, hearing an unusual sound within and seeing a bright light like a pillar of fire resting upon the temple. Others saw angels hovering over the temple and heard heavenly singing. Wow. Yeah. So really intense visions, manifestations, angelic appearances, speaking in tongues, things that people would consider neurodivergent today Mm -hmm. or weird or strange all of these people were experiencing these things together and it was a heaven-sent holy experience i really would encourage people to go back and listen to episode 21 spiritual manifestations and gifts because we talk about psychosis and spirituality and how 
people who actually have psychosis who are psychotic, and that is a reclaimed term as far as I'm aware for them, how they feel about representations of that in spiritual context, if that makes sense. Go listen to this if you're curious, and then reread section 109 with that in mind. Yeah, and we do have a transcript up of that episode as well, so you can read or listen to it on our website, holyhumanpodcast.com. So section 109, I'm glad they rejoiced in it and that they were not afraid to describe those experiences, even though they might be viewed as insane or psychotic experiences and therefore not reliable by people outside Mm -hmm. the church or by especially by neurotypical people outside the church so i'm like glad about that i just mm, there's a lot of things in this section that i didn't like honestly in verse 20 no unclean thing shall be permitted to come into thy house to pollute it i don't like that language it doesn't define what an unclean thing is it references Luke 19 talking about uh, Jesus in the temple and how they made that temple a den of thieves. I don't know. Like, I can get really cynical about this and say, like, are you not making it a den of thieves already by taking money from poor people and then making it so that we can't access it because of health or mental issues or neurodivergencies, you know? Mm. Like, is there informed mm-hmm. consent about entering this temple? Verse 29. We ask thee, Holy Father, to confound and astonish and to bring shame and confusion all those who have spread lying reports abroad over the world against thy servant or servants, if they will not repent when the everlasting gospel shall be proclaimed in their ears. First of all, it's assuming that people are all hearing. Secondly, it's interesting that it uses shame and confusion as like a weapon. Does that make sense? Mm, Yeah. And... It's quite manipulative, and I'm someone who doesn't, I don't believe that, like, manipulation is in and of itself a bad thing. Like, if someone's like, oh, you manipulated me, I'm like, well, we all manipulate everyone. Like, literally, when we're saying please and thank you, that's manipulation. Like, it's 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 trying to tailor a conversation the way that you hope the other person will want it to be received, right? Anyway, Shame and confusion, like using people's emotions against them, I guess is kind of what it's doing here. Mm -hmm. Saying if you don't believe in what we're saying and you're going to spread lies, then we're going to make you feel a certain way. We're going to make you feel shame. We're going to make you feel confused, which is kind of manipulative, kind of aggressive. But honestly, like, I think it's kind of funny because it would only work on certain neurotypes. (laughs) Like, oh. especially in like cluster B personality disorders. So we have narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and histrionic personality disorder. We, we feel our emotions differently. And many of us in cluster B don't feel as much guilt and empathy as other people do, as people who are neurotypical, I should say. And especially like people with like ASPD, you can't guilt them into something because they literally just don't feel guilt. Like, and it's, and it's their neurotype. Does that make sense? Like, would you say don't feel guilt, period, or don't feel guilt as neurotypical people feel guilt? Don't feel guilt. Even, I thought that like, we have different ways to feel empathy, like cognitive mm-hmm, empathy. At mm-hmm. least people feel that. Is it not the same with guilt? I would say 
they don't feel the effect of guilt, right? Like the emotional feeling of guilt. Right. And I say this as someone who's talked extensively and has a close friend who has ASPD, and they actually also have narcissistic personality disorder as well. So because of that, they are able to feel shame because NPD does feel shame. But their ASPD, because of that, they don't feel guilt. And so they they don't have that like physical, emotional feeling of guilt, but they have developed their cognitive empathy enough that they can recognize when guilt would be useful in a situation and then choose to like apologize or change because of it but it's not an emotional thing it's a cognitive thing does that make sense Mm, okay yep that makes sense so they don't like feel bad about themselves in that moment well And I'm kind of like grouping shame and guilt together, even though they've told me that there are specific distinctions between remorse, regret, guilt, and shame. To me, honestly, during that conversation, it was shocking to me because to me, we've all grouped it together in the church. Does that make sense? When we talk about shame Mm -hmm. and guilt, we use those words interchangeably. Like if someone sins and you feel terrible about yourself and like you want to repent, you want to do better, um... People will say, oh, that's godly sorrow or it's not godly sorrow. It's never like, are you feeling shame or guilt? It's like both of those things. It could be either godly or or Satan or you know what I mean? Like, yeah, to me, that was kind of a revelation, honestly, that shame is separate from guilt and, and guilt is separate from remorse. Remorse meaning a step further from guilt where you actually want to go back and change it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this whole like... If you're spreading lies about us, we're going to make you feel shame. It's just like, okay, well, like I can just imagine my friend being like, okay, well, go ahead, try. (laughs) Like it's not going to work, but okay. (laughs) Anyway, and then there are other people of other neurotypes and mental illnesses. For those of us who do have these really terrible moments where we're feeling bad about ourselves, that's why we have such high suicide rates. And so like this verse saying, oh, we're going to make you feel shame and confusion almost feels exploitative of people with those neurotypes who are already prone to feeling shame and confusion when we're in poor mental states. Mm -hmm. Anyway, fainting in the day of trouble, verse 38, is another ableist metaphor. Verse 65, calling the remnants of Jacob a wild and savage people. I was like, oh my gosh, like that's that's problematic. Right. Like calling people who are unconverted wild and savage, like there's anti-blackness right there and just like anti-indigeneity. Anyway, what are your notes for 110? Okay, I just have one thing. This is when Joseph and Oliver saw Christ in the Kirtland Temple and... I'll read their description of Christ. It says, His eyes were as a flame of fire. The hair of his head was white like the pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was as the sound of the rushing of great waters, even the voice of Jehovah, saying, I am the first and the last. I am he who liveth. I am he who was slain. I am your advocate with the Father. I want to first point out that they did not describe skin color here. I think that when we have depictions of this moment, it's always Christ painted as a white man, but that is Mm. not part of the description. And then also I just wanted to point out this Christ-like attribute that's listed here that we don't talk about very often. It says the very last line, I'm your advocate with the father. 
And I think when we talk about being Christ-like, we need to remember that being an advocate is part of that. It's such a crucial, crucial calling that we have on the earth to be advocates for each other Mm -hmm. and to watch out for people who need advocates. Thanks for listening, everyone. Join the conversation at Holy Human on Instagram, W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. Also, follow us on Facebook. You're free to email us if you want to be involved, holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. We also want to thank Matif for intro and outro music. We access the song through freesound.org. Also, a really quick thank you to people who are helping us with these transcripts for our episodes. Teddy and Sandra, big thank you to you guys and to all our supporters. We'll be back soon with another episode.